Well, if you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 24 in our time together this morning. How many of you have been on a short-term mission trip? Yeah, it, it could be stateside. It doesn't have to be overseas. You know, it, it counts when you do it here, too. My, uh, my son, Matthew, is in Morocco right now on a short-term mission trip. Because it's a closed country, he's actually over there for soccer clinics is, is the way in. And, you know, there's always prep before you go. You know, you, where you get together and you say, no, make sure you take these shirts and we're going to do the, all kinds of prep leading up to it. And then they go and they do the mission trip. And then when they come back, there's normally kind of a debriefing where you kind of talk through what actually happened. In Luke chapter 10, we have a mission trip, a short-term mission trip, where Jesus is going to send out 70, I have written down here 70 or 72 messengers. There's a textual variant, so I may sometimes say 70 and 72. It's the same group of guys. They either went out in pairs of 36 or 35. Okay, 70 guys. And scholars have often said, why 70? Maybe... Maybe it reflects the 70 nations in Genesis 10, and this means this is a mission that goes to the whole world. Maybe. Maybe it reflects the number of elders that Moses had working with him. Maybe. Maybe it's just 12 tribes of Israel times 6. 72. Maybe. And maybe Jesus just sent out 70 guys. Okay, so I'm not sure, I'm a little bit cautious on some of the symbolism for this one, okay? He sent these guys out, and what's most important, it was a short-term mission trip, and you kind of get this sense, remember we said, once you hit chapter 9 of Luke, everything Jesus does is in light of the fact that he's gone to Jerusalem. And what will happen in Jerusalem? Death, burial, resurrection, ascension, Right? All that. And so, so what you have here in chapter 10, he's already, matter of fact, for what it's worth, I, I hope this thing is just turned on first. Okay, here we go. Ah, I don't know if you can see that in the back. Sorry about it. Can you guys see it in the back? Just quasi. Just for what it's worth, it's interesting when you read through Luke and you read the word disciple, what group are you looking at? And sometimes down at the very bottom, you have Peter, James, and John who alone go with Jesus to do very special things like the transfiguration, right? Sometimes you expand back and you have the 12. The 12 have already been sent out on a mission trip, haven't they? Where they were kind of preparing the way for Jesus. And then only Luke mentions this group, the 70. None of the other gospels, but it tells us then it's not just the 12. There's a larger group that Jesus is going to send out. And then we also read just about a large number of disciples. All right. So, so when you read through Luke's gospel, talking about a lot of different people, this chapter is talking about the 70. And here's what you get. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And it's fascinating when you have actually Jesus coming into Jerusalem itself. Remember, he comes in with just a great number of disciples. We read that in Luke chapter 19. And, and I think part of what happens is the 70 are going to go out to all these different villages and their message is going to be real simple. The kingdom of God is at hand. Sounds like John the Baptist. And what they're saying is, look out, something's coming. And it's going to 
blow you away. And the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ does that very thing. So he's going to send, and they don't fully even know what they're talking about when they said it. But nonetheless, he's going to send them out. Okay, makes sense? Now, here's what's interesting to me about this story. Jesus, first of all, talks to them, prepares them to actually go out. Then, the text doesn't tell us anything about happened when they, when they actually went out. It doesn't tell us anything. It just picks up when they came back. That's it. So he prepares them, and they come back, and, and he debriefs with them. That's it. So that's what the text does. That's what we're going to do. Now, in your bulletins, if you want to look at it, you've got a longer outline on it. I'm not going to read through all those points, but, but you've got it there. That's just something that maybe you can use later today if you want to go back over the passage again. So here's the preparation period. Look here in verses um, 2 to 16, 1 to 16. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two and two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You know one of the things I learned when you read this, and you have it there in your notes if you want to read it. Jesus explains to the messengers that witnessing about his kingdom is both a great opportunity, and it's, it's, it's this great opportunity that we have, and it's also a place of certain vulnerability. Do you ever get scared when you witness? I know very few people in my life that don't get scared before they witness. Don't you? For a variety of reasons. We're afraid what the person's going to say. We're not sure exactly what to say if we have all the answers. A whole host of things come to our mind. And one of the things you find in this passage is Jesus says, look, 70. Or look, people at the chapel. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, are we not also called to talk to the, about the king? And do we not get nervous? Jesus will use the image here. When you go out, it is like a lamb in the midst of wolves. Nice image for you? I mean, you think about that. It's just a little, bah, bah. And every totally circling them, wolves. I mean, you go like, that sounds a little scary to me. And Jesus plays it straight when it comes to witnessing, doesn't he? He says, yeah, th there, there will be this sense of opposition. You will feel vulnerable because you won't be in a place where people will oppose you. And you know, also I notice in the text, when they go, he says, carry no purse, verse 4, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Look, I know he said in the previous chapter, the Son of Man is homeless, doesn't have a place to put his head. So you think about it when you read this passage. Here are guys going into these cities. They don't know if people are going to accept them or not. Well, if they reject you and you don't have any money in your money bag, where's that put you? In the street, doesn't it? And you're a little bit nervous about that. So here are people that are called 
to move out. They're vulnerable because they have to trust God with their limited resources. And they don't know. Matter of fact, Jesus says, actually, some people will oppose you. But Jesus says that's one side, vulnerability. The other side is opportunity. Jesus says, with all of the opposition and all the problems there, I see a harvest. But I don't have enough workers for the harvest. I mean, it is a great opportunity to move into the world of others. And there are so many needy people who are ripe and ready to hear. Now, the tricky part is, I don't know which ones they are. And you don't either, right? I mean, that's our problem. But here, when it comes to witnessing, Jesus is very honest. When you move out, men, it's not, you're going to be vulnerable. You're going to be scared. It's not going to be easy. But it's a great opportunity. And Jesus says, keep those two in balance. Remember um, the book, maybe you had to read it in high school. Um, the Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times and what? And the worst of times. Sometimes I think witnessing feels like that. Doesn't it? Man, it's hard. I don't know how my family is going to respond to me at this family get-together. If I say too much, right? We worry. We worry. But it's the best of times because we share our faith. God's spirit works in such a way that only he can and people get saved. Look at those of you here today that know Christ as your Savior. Who would have ever thought that you would have gotten saved? Isn't it true? And somebody probably looked at you and said, I don't think they'll ever accept the Lord. I don't want to tell them. But you know what? We don't always know who is the opportunity and who is the opposition. We're called to share. That's what we do. So, verses 5 to 16, he prepares them for these polarized reactions because he knows this is going to happen. So listen to what he says. And he's going to look both at what happens when you go to, to a particular home and what happens when you go to a particular city filled with homes. Verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him, and if not, it will return to you. Who's the one that brings peace? Jesus Christ and him alone. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, listen to this. When the angels were announcing the birth of Christ to the shepherds, they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among men with whom he is pleased. The peace of Luke chapter 10 is the peace that can only come when someone is reconciled to God. So you come in and you say, yeah, you say shalom. And if somebody is willing to hear that kind of shalom, they're sons of peace. They accept, they accept what God has for them in Jesus Christ. And stay in that home eating and drinking whatever they give you. And here's a very, very popular text um, for ministers. 
for the laborer is worthy of his wages, right? I mean, that's, well, it's popular enough that Paul actually quotes from it uh, later in his epistles. Do not keep moving from house to house. So he says, look, if you go into a town and you find somebody that's responsive to Jesus Christ, stay there. If they want to feed you, let them feed you. Eat. And stay there as long as they'll let you stay there so you have to move on to the next town. Okay? So, so lets them know about those things. But it goes on to say this. Verse 8. And whatever city you enter and they receive you and eat what is set before you, heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets. Now, folks, listen to this. This is pretty strict. Go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you, yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. I want you to think about that for a minute. <laughs> Can you imagine if I did that at your place of employment? Suppose I came to the place where you work started talking about the Lord and overwhelmingly people were saying, Bank Biner, get out of here, or whatever they may. And I went outside, wiped off my feet. I wipe off the dust from my feet because I am finished with you. And I walked and turned and went away. Man, I mean, what would you think of me? Think like, wow. Um. Now, in all fairness, this isn't being done at a company. It's not even being done at a home. It's being done at a, in a town or a city as a whole that totally rejects that. But here's what's important. To say to people, the kingdom of God has come near because the king is here. That is the greatest of all opportunities for people, isn't it? And with heightened privilege comes heightened responsibility. Because if God says, I have brought my kingdom near in my son, and you say as a city, no thank you, then don't force it. Wipe the dirt off your feet and go to the next city. Is it wonderful that the kingdom of God has come? Oh, it's unbelievable. Does it make you doubly responsible if you reject it? It does. Notice what he goes on to say here in verse 13. This is, this is, what's interesting to me is Jesus is not speaking verse 13 for the sake of Chorazim or Bethsaida. He's speaking it for the benefit of the witnesses. Look at what he says. Woe to you, Chorazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are cities that could be, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I missed verse 12, my bad. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. How could that be? The kingdom of God is at hand. No thank you. You guys are worse than Sodom. Oh, really? How, how do you think that went over for a bunch of Jews? They're like, what do you know about Sodom and Gomorrah? Stellar ethical behavior? <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like perversity on steroids. Listen to what he goes on to say. Listen to the comparisons. There's Sodom. 
Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. Jesus comes and says, the reason it'll be more tolerable for them is not because of their ethical behavior, but because of your privilege of knowing so much more than they ever knew. And he says, Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon. Think of violence, Tyre and Sidon. Think of atrocity, Tyre and Sidon. Idolatry, Tyre and Sidon. All that stuff. And he says, he says, if they would have heard the privileged message you heard, they would have repented. It's one of the things people forget in our day. There is no better time in history to live, folks, than on this side of the cross. Do you know that? People say to me sometimes, wouldn't you love to go back to see the miracles of Moses' time? Nope. I mean, I wouldn't mind snapshot, but I don't want to live there. I want to live now because Jesus has come and he's coming back and we live in that time frame and we're so privileged, but with that privilege of the message of Jesus Christ and with the fact that God himself has come, when people say, no, thank you, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom than it is for you. Now, he's not, he's not saying that to Capernaum or Bethsaida. He's saying that for the sake of the witnesses. When you and I tell people about the glories of Jesus Christ, it is so glorious that to reject it places them in a really, really, really culpable position. Do you see that? So he says all this for their benefit. And he ends by saying this in verse 16. The one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. You know, when you give your best shot at witnessing. And nobody, I mean, does anybody get done witnessing and say to themselves like, man, that was a home run. I never hit a home run when I witness. I'm hoping for a double from time to time. You know, I mean, we all struggle, we, you know, because you think, what's the best way in to, to share Jesus? And sometimes you just say, I don't know, I'm just going to do it. You know, we do all kinds of things. Oh, I, I should have changed this. That, that's what, it, it's true of all of us. But here's the bottom line. When we in our fear move out and share Christ, whatever they do to us, they're actually doing to who? Jesus. And whatever they do to Jesus, they're ultimately doing to who? The Father. You never go alone. They never accept you alone or reject you alone. It's all about God. Wow. That kind of gives some momentum to our witness, doesn't it? All of a sudden we say, this is like the greatest of all gifts. I mean, I, it's precious. I got to share it with people. It's, it's great. And, and if they reject it, it's, it's awful. But but they accept it. It's wonderful. And what they do to me, they do to God. I mean, he's given them all kinds of motivation. They haven't gone out yet. And he says, okay, guys, go. 
go with this glorious gift, knowing I am with you, knowing it won't be easy, but there's nothing better in the, earth, in the world than doing it. And that's all we get. We don't get anything else about the trip itself. What we get is the results in verse 17. My Bible has a caption above this section that says, the happy results, uh, which is just kind of a nice way of saying it. So look at what happens when they come back here in verse 17. And the 70 returned with joy. Okay. What is it that pumped these guys up when they got back from this trip? They got back, I mean, they're high-fiving. Did you see that? Right? Because they're with joy. What is it that really made them excited? That's what they said. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, like, we were casting out demons. It was unbelievable. And Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. So they come back high-fiving saying, man, you should have seen that exorcism. And Jesus says, you know why you, know why you were able to exorcise demons? Because Satan has lost. You know, when lightning strikes, how quick is it? <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, I don't know. I'm sure scientists can tell me what means. But, but right, I mean, it's, it's like really quick. And with the coming of Jesus Christ, pew, Satan is finished. And when he talks here about treading on serpents, he's not saying literally, find a snake under a rock somewhere, step on top of it and see what happens. No, this is, this is language you find from the Old Testament in the New Testament in early Jewish literature. It's, it's image to say the, the serpent represents who? Satan. And he says, you know what? When you step out into the world, I protect you. Because Satan is crushed under my authority. And you go forth with my authority. And anything that comes towards you will not come to you apart from my permission and allowance. Because I am God. And I am greater than all that. And you, you, not because of who you are, but because of who I am through you, you can... You can have victory over the enemy because I am the great victor. It's a great promise. So Jesus comments on what they just said. But then he says this. I love this. I love this. Nevertheless, verse 20. Do not rejoice in this. Lord, you don't want us to like rejoice in the power? Like exorcisms? No, no. No, no, no. This is, this is where I want you to rejoice. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. They are because of me. That's true, Jesus says. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. What is it that should turn us on more than anything else? What I can do for God. Or what he has done for us. Do you see? He says, I want you to realize that you're secure in me. Your names are in heaven. You're mine. 
And the stuff you do for me that I do through you, that's, that's great because it's a sign of who I am. That's all good stuff. But focus more on the great privilege of just being his. That's really good, isn't it? I mean, and, 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 and he's careful. Jesus is careful because he's happy that they're excited. But he, he just wants everything balanced here. And what should, most important is what he's done. At that very time, verse 21, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This um, is the only occurrence I could find in the Gospels where it tells me Jesus rejoices greatly. And I thought it was really interesting. What is it that really excites Christ? After he said to these guys, guys, your great joy should be that you are his. He then says, Father, it is your will, it is my will, because you can't know the Father apart from me, and the Son represents the Father. We're one in, in this whole thing, and I'm speaking in the Holy Spirit, all that. Jesus says, God has this glorious plan where it's not about being smart enough or strong enough, is it? It's actually about recognizing that you are weak and you have nothing. All the way through the Gospels, I've told you this, probably enough to make you annoyed. The only group that Jesus cannot help are those who don't think they need help. The wise and the intelligent, we've got to figure it out. We can do it in the next week. The next passage we're going to look at next week actually is an example of one of those wise, intelligent guys who can't figure it out. He's self-righteous. We'll look at that next week. But Jesus is saying, God, it is, it is so wonderful that our plan as the Trinity, because you find Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father all here. Our plan as the Trinity is to reach down to a world and when people say, I'm undone, I'm hopeless, I have no way to go, I need help, I'm a sinner. God says, that's it. That, that, that's it. I rejoice that our plan is we'll reach everyone who cries out and says, I'm undone and I need help. Isn't that wonderful? You don't have to be so smart or so strong or so gifted you have to realize you have nothing but your sin. You bring that to God and God just sweeps over our soul and brings us into the kingdom. It's great stuff, folks. He ends by saying this. Look at verse 23 and 24. Turning to the disciples, he said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things you see and did not see them. 
and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Jesus says, guys, this glorious plan that reaches to the undone, the humble who realize they need me, this glorious plan that God would come, the king would come, and there's hope and transformation. He looks at the disciples and he says, you guys are the most privileged of all people of all history. Do you know how many prophets and kings in the Old Testament said, so how's this all going to come together? Haven't you found that sometimes you read the Old Testament, you say like, well, that's kind of interesting. Like, like I was wondering, what, what's that king and prophet thinking when they said that? They weren't sure all what they were thinking when they said what they said. They knew it was all going to come together somehow, right? And they, they almost just kind of said, oh, I, I, can't, I wish we were there, and they're not there. Jesus says to the disciples, you're there. And you know what, folks? We're there. We are so, so privileged. Aren't we? And, and, and he says, look, look, they would have just loved to see. And here you guys are. And so you got these disciples that are, you know, hitting each other, griping and complaining half the time and all the things that they do. I mean, they're so us. It's, it's, just, it's just so funny. I mean, it's just like, that's us. It's us. She says, you're the privileged bunch. You're babes. You've accepted me. You're secure in me. I let you do all kinds of wonderful things. Oh, no. oh, huh. Don't ever think my life just is a bore and I don't have any place or any significance. You couldn't be more significant. Not because of yourself. Because the God who has loved you. And he's privileged with us. So, let me see if I can sum that up with two statements. The act of witnessing to others includes both opportunity and vulnerability. That's the truth. It is an incredible opportunity. But it's not going to be easy. And... Um, you can read as many books as you want. And, and if you ever want to read books, I mean, i got some books I, I would readily recommend to you, nice books on witnessing. So I'm all for doing all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, just tell people about Jesus. And realize some are going to say, what are you, nuts? Yeah. It's, yes, they did it to our Lord. They'll do it to us. But there are folks whose hearts God will touch through his spirit, through you. And maybe they don't get saved then. Maybe God will just plant a seed and somebody else will plant a seed and somebody else will plant a seed and you'll meet them six... I mean, we've all had that experience. I've met guys and I said, wow, like what happened to you? I became a Christian. You became a Christian? Remember what you said to me four or five years ago? I know, I know, I know, I know. You know, it's God. It's God at work. It's a great opportunity, folks. The harvest field is always plentiful. And there's never enough workers. That's always the case. Secondly, the motivation for witnessing is more about being overwhelmed with having a relationship with Christ than cataloging what we do for Christ. I do not like it they used to have evangelists come to our church years ago, and they used to say, how many people have you led to Christ this year? I think it's a terrible question. 
Now, if you want to say, how many people have you witnessed to for Christ this year? I'm okay with that one. That, that's, that's a good question, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, the motivation for witnessing is not about cataloging what God does through me. He will. He's glorious. It's rather, I am overwhelmed that I'm his. And I would like you to become his too. Can I invite you to Jesus? Not, not to my church, not to my religion, to Jesus. Because there's nothing better than knowing him. Becoming a forgiven follower of Jesus Christ. It's the best thing in the world. Some will hear and some will reject. So I guess if I had to try to put it into one sentence, I'd say witnessing is an awesome, sobering privilege. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. But before I start praying, I'd ask you to pray to yourself and ask God to lay on your heart at least one person that you can begin praying about who you would like to share your faith with. Is that fair? So let's go to prayer. You pray to God. I'll close in 30 to 40 seconds. Let's pray.